0: If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Luke. We continue on in our series. Luke chapter 11 is where we're at. We'll be picking it up in verse 14. I'm in John 11. Just realize it's not going to help anybody. Ben Hayden was a Presbyterian pastor in the last century. You may know his name. You may not. Because we're Baptists and not Presbyterians, but uh, I I would equate him to kind of like a Presbyterian version of Charles Stanley, if you know who Charles Stanley is. Uh, He had a broadcast called Change Lives, Ben Hayden did, that was uh, all over the world for for years. It was uh, listened to. And he's got a pretty neat story. He was an atheist until he was 30 years old, and then he became a Christian, and then God called him into ministry. Uh, But. I was reading a story this week about him going to visit a man in the hospital. He got a call uh, in the middle of the night that uh, this man that one of the church members knew and that he had known throughout the years was, was dying, and so he went to the hospital to see this guy, and it's 3.30 in the morning. And at 3.30 a.m., Pastor Hayden looks at him, and he says, uh, How is it between you and the Lord? And the man says, Well, Pastor, I've known God my whole life. I've tried to observe godly standards. Uh, I have, you know, been honest in business. I've worked hard. Any money that I made, I didn't make it crookedly. And the pastor said, okay, so let me rephrase it. How is it between you and Jesus? And he looked at him and he said, well, I've never really made a place for Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. And if I were to start believing in him now, I'd have to rethink everything about my entire life. And uh, I'm not going to do that. My philosophy, my worldview, everything, I'd have to rethink it right here on my deathbed. And I'm not doing that. And then Pastor Hayden looked at him and said, sir, you know, by God's grace, you've got time. You've got time right now to rethink it. You need to rethink it right now. And he said, no. He said, I'm going to die without Jesus. the pastor said you understand he died for your sins right and the man said I understand that but it's too late for me to rethink it I will die without Jesus that sort of ardent hard-hearted unbelief is terrifying it's dangerous and I think it's insidious I say insidious because I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says oh I'm gonna I'm gonna keep Jesus out of my life I've made a declaration. I think that's something that creeps up on you over the years. Because in small moment after small moment after small moment, you say no, 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 no to Jesus until your heart grows hard toward him. Years of rejecting him, years of denial. What we see in this passage this morning is the same sort of dangerous unbelief. You see a blasphemous unbelief in this passage this morning. And then you'll also see this this other brand of unbelief, right alongside the blasphemous unbelief this morning, and the other brand seems to be not as bad. It seems to be the sort of unbelief that maybe God would tolerate, but the reality is is He's not going to tolerate any unbelief, and that's going to be clear to us. As I read, keep in mind, Jesus is still on the road. He's still traveling toward Jerusalem. Still traveling toward the cross. And he's going to do that all the way to chapter 19. Uh, Next week when we get to verse 29, you'll see that it says, as the crowds were increasing. So the crowds are getting bigger, and they're going to continue to get bigger until there's a fever pitch of people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he enters into Jerusalem. And then it won't be long before they cry, crucify him, crucify him. But Luke 11, let me start reading in verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stranger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder." He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and it does not find any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. In this scene, you have Jesus casting a demon out of a man who was mute, and the crowd is amazed by it uh, on a couple of levels. I mean, if we were here this morning and you saw Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was mute, you would remember that for the rest of your life. So they're amazed just on the level that they've seen a miracle. And then on top of that, it's the fact that this guy was mute. Uh, So that means that for years, probably, he couldn't speak. Maybe even decades, he couldn't speak, but was known to the community. I mean, they know... They, they knew who he was and so uh this man who was mute suddenly starts speaking and that would have blown their minds um, his tongue had been imprisoned by the evil of one of satan's demons for all this time and then suddenly they hear his voice and so when it's, luke says the crowd is amazed you can almost hear them kind of go <gasps> right kind of gasp as suddenly this man begins to speak But there are some in the crowd that are not too impressed with with, uh, the things they have seen. Verse 15 says, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So what they're saying is, he casts out demons by Satan's power. Beelzebul had become the name for the devil in Hebrew culture. And and here's how we got there. In ancient Syrian texts that have been found, you see the name uh, Beelzebul which literally means Baal the Prince, okay? So as they talked about the god Baal, the false god Baal, they called him Baal the Prince. But in the Old Testament, the Jewish writers wrote the name as Baalzebub. They changed it. Instead of Baal the Prince, that means Lord of the Flies, as in the flies that like eat dung, okay? So... That was a little jab by the Jewish writers of the Old Testament who were purposely distorting the name of this false god to mock it and to say, he's not a prince, he's the Lord of the flies, that's all he is. And so then that name got attached to Satan. And it was a fitting name for Satan. It's a name of mockery. The Lord of the flies, but in truth he is no Lord at all. But you have people in the crowd who are putting Jesus in the same league was Beelzebul with Satan, and they're accusing Jesus of having a partnership with him. So, who are these people? Well, in Matthew twelve, you learn just who they are. Matthew twelve, starting in verse twenty-two. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed them, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, "This man cannot be the son of David, can he?" But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So now we find out that this man uh, who was healed uh, seemed to not just be mute but blind. So now you really understand why they were amazed because he is also seeing. But the Pharisees are there. And they are the ones that say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. It's the Pharisees. Others in the crowd are a little bit more reserved in their criticism. They don't accuse him of being satanic, they just demand a sign from heaven. We'll talk more about signs and demands for signs next week, but a little spoiler alert to next week's passage, demanding a sign is really not more palatable than calling Jesus satanic. It's still evil. Because look at verse 29. Jesus says this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. It is wicked to demand a sign from God. You don't put God on trial. He puts you on trial. Right? So it is wicked to demand a sign from God. But let's get back to the Pharisees here. They have just called the Son of God satanic. That's what they've done. I mean... Like I said, this is a blasphemous brand of unbelief. To not just say I don't believe in Jesus, but to say that he is satanic. And if Jesus had just called down fire from heaven on them and consumed them in that moment, I don't think you blame them. I think you're like, oh, that was just. I mean, they called the Son of God satanic. They had that coming. But if you remember back in Luke 10, James and John wanted fire called down from heaven. Remember on the Samaritan villages who would not receive Jesus' party and Jesus told them what? I didn't come to destroy men's lives. That's not what his first coming is about. He came to save them. So instead of scorching these Pharisees, instead of smiting them on the spot, he reasons with them which is, that's called mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. He mercifully reasons with these blasphemous men. And he points out how their logic, the logic of their accusation, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even compute. Let's really think about what they're arguing here. They're saying that Satan must have allowed one of his demons, who was successfully rendering a man mute and blind, To be cast out by Jesus. So then Jesus could gain credibility. And then Satan and Jesus together could deceive all of Israel with a false Messiah. That's pretty much the argument that the Pharisees are making. Satan takes one loss here up front in order to get a gain in in the long run. A bigger gain. Right? It's like a sacrifice bunt in baseball. Satan is laying down the sacrifice here, giving up one of his demons so he could use a false Messiah named Jesus to deceive the entire nation of Israel. That's what the Pharisees are putting out there. Now here's the big problem with their argument. This isn't the only demon that Jesus has cast out. He's going all over the place casting out demons. There's ten different healings in the book of Luke, really more than that because sometimes Luke will just say, he was healing people all over the region. Everywhere he went, he was healing people. Like he'll say stuff like that, so you know that there's just a myriad of healings that Jesus performed that we we're not even privy to. We'ren't even recorded uh, in detail. And of those healings, four of them in Luke are just straight up exorcisms, where he is casting out a demon. And again, there are other times where it talks about him casting out demons just kind of in a general way, and we don't get details, so it's more than just those instances. But the bottom line is that a major part of Jesus' ministry is casting out demonic forces. When the kingdom of God came to earth in Christ, it seems like Satan responded with a heightened amount of demonic activity on the earth. If you ever wondered why, how come like we as Christians aren't just going around and seeing people who are demon-possessed all over the place? That doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. I absolutely believe that it does, but you know, you're not going to Kroger and just like seeing demon-possessed people on a regular basis. Do you know what I mean? You ever wonder why is that? I, I, I believe that in the time in which the Son of God was on the earth, Satan reacted by saying, me, I'm going to send my forces out to try to stop him. You see in the temptation of Christ that Satan very much understood who Jesus was and wanted to stop him. So Jesus' track record then is that every time he faces off with the forces of hell, whether it be in his temptation in the wilderness or in exorcisms, every time he proves he is sovereign and that the forces of hell and Satan himself cannot withstand his power. It's like James says in in, in the book of James, even the demons tremble, right? They know who he is. So Jesus' resume shows he's not a partner with Satan. He's an enemy to Satan. Satan. And he is a victorious enemy over Satan and the gates of hell. And so Jesus shows him the fault and the logic with three different arguments. The first, he is showing that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It's going to be laid waste, right? It's going to fall. Everybody knows this. There's no kingdom, there's no home, no country, no administration, no business, no organization, no team that can survive war in its own camp. should be a warning to us to remember no local church, right? We're studying 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights right now, and uh, the first thing Paul addresses with them is the fact that they are divided, there's jealousy and there's strife among them. I'm a big sports fan and throughout the history of sports, there will be teams like the 2004 Lakers that come along and you go, they're stacked. I mean, just give them the title. Call the season. They got Kobe and they got Shaq, two of the probably 10 best players of all time. And then on top of that, they got the mailman, Carl Malone, and they got the glove, Gary Payton, and they've got Derek Fisher, like one of the best role players in the history of the league, and they're stacked. Phil Jackson's the coach. Phil Jackson, he like made a whole offense to change basketball, just give him the title. And then they get by by the skin of their teeth into the finals, and if you know anything about the NBA, they got worked in the finals by the Detroit Pistons. It wasn't close. Dominated. And everybody goes, what happened? And then two years later, Phil Jackson writes a book and goes, oh, those guys all hated each other. They hated each other, especially the two biggest stars on the team, Kobe and Shaq. They hated each other. And you go, oh, that's why they lost, right? That's why they lost. Kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan is partnered with Christ, who is his proven enemy, how is that of any benefit to Satan? Even the devil knows that you cannot win with your enemy on your own team. And so Jesus says, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So he says in verse 19. The Pharisees had contemporaries contemporaries that they raised up and that they approved of who were casting out demons by the power of God were those men in partnerships with Satan as well that's the question that Jesus is asking your your boys cast out demons too are they doing that by Satan's power He says, so they will be your judges. What that means is they are witnesses against you. If you were to try to take the argument you're making against me right now and bring it into a court of law, then your own disciples would be witnesses against you because of the argument you're making. We'll come back to verse 20 in a moment. Go down to verses 21 and 22. This time he uses a little mini parable to make his point. He tells the story of a strong man who's fully armed, guards his own house. His possessions are undisturbed. But in verse 22, there's a stronger man who comes and attacks the man and overpowers him and takes all his stuff from him, ransacks the house, distributes the plunder. And Jesus' point here is that Satan is a strong man. Satan's got power. His possessions are secure. He's armed up. But he's only secure until a superior power shows up, and Jesus is the superior power who comes and defeats him and takes his stuff. The possessions are people. People like this mutant blind man that Jesus has delivered. So again, he's telling them I'm not Satan's partner, I'm his enemy. I'm the stronger man who comes in and steals from him, right? In John 10, you see that nobody steals from the hand of the Father, but Jesus absolutely takes from the hand of Satan. And in all this, Jesus is being incredibly merciful. Again, these guys looked at the Son of God, at God in the flesh, the one who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. It was made by His power. They look at Him and they say, you're satanic. Could have, could have you know, wiped them out right there. Could have called angels down. Could have called down fire from heaven like Elijah. But instead, He's mercifully reasoned to these guys. He's looking at them. He's saying, think. Think about what you were saying. He's showing them. They have fallen into the trap of obstinate, hard-hearted unbelief. The clear evidence of the power of God is right there in front of them in the person of Christ. And they're attributing it to the powers of hell. They're giving Satan credit for the miracles of God. That's what the Pharisees are doing. It's blasphemous. But he's reasoning with them. And maybe the biggest point he makes is actually in verse 20. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. That's a direct reference to Exodus 8. Remember when Moses, he's repeatedly doing um, these miraculous things that can only be attributed to God's power. The plagues are coming upon Egypt. And what does uh, Pharaoh do? He wants the magicians of Egypt to replicate what Moses is doing, right? And so after the plague of the gnats comes uh, along, Egypt's magicians... They try to repeat the same act, and and here's what they say to Pharaoh. They say, This is the finger of God, meaning we can't repeat it. There's, There's nothing we can do here in our human power. But listen to what Exodus 8, verse 19 says. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Jesus casts out demons by the finger of God. Just as Moses and Aaron did miracles by the finger of God, and it was proof that the kingdom of God had come to earth, it was proof the king was standing right there in front of the Pharisees, but like Pharaoh, they are hardening their hearts and calling God's work satanic. And Jesus mercifully uses logic and reason to show them that what they're doing is dangerous. Here's how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, They were tottering on the edge of an eternity of judgment. but merciful Jesus would not let them go on without explaining to them exactly what they were doing. He was not going to let them suppose that reason was on their side. In this unbelief, in which they are calling the Messiah a partner of Satan, they are dancing on the edge of eternal damnation. That's what they're doing. They have given up on making sense as long as it means they can keep trying to discredit Jesus. Their hatred for him has pushed them over the edge and beyond the walls of logic. They are now insanely blasphemous in their hearts and in their speech. It is not unlike the culture that we live in today. People hate Jesus, man. Remember a few years back when the shirts came out you could buy them at Spencer Gifts? Jesus is my homeboy. I hated those shirts so much. I was a youth pastor and I wouldn't let the kids in my youth group wear those shirts because I was like, no, that's not what he is. But we're beyond that now in the culture. Jesus isn't the homeboy anymore to the culture. He represents a hurdle to them being able to do whatever is right in their own eyes. There is obstinate, hard-hearted unbelief all around us. There are people all around us tottering on the edge of an eternity without anything good and without the Lord himself. And it is terrifying. There are people who, like the man in the bed with Pastor Hayden, they would say, no, I will die without Jesus. I will not rethink this. Their hatred for him has caused them to be insanely blasphemous in their hearts. But merciful Jesus still sends his church to preach the message of the gospel to them, to reason with them. And we've got to go, and we've got to tell them. Let's keep going here. There was another type of unbelief in the crowd that day. It wasn't as vehement. doesn't sound as blasphemous. Seems like a a sort of middle road. Some decent people were there who were probably counting themselves as neutrals. They're not anti-Jesus. They don't hate Jesus. Maybe even thought the Pharisees had gone way too far in their slander. Maybe on their way home from this scene, they were like, man, they they called that guy satanic. That was harsh. I don't think they should have said that. But they weren't going to follow Jesus either, and they weren't going to agree with Jesus, and they they weren't going to cast their lot with Jesus. They're going to be Switzerland. Right? They're going to be in the middle. They're not Pharisees. They're not Christ followers. And in their mind, they probably thought there was some nobility in that. After all, they didn't call Jesus the devil. So Jesus, knowing that there are people like that in the crowd says what he says he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters if you're not walking with me you're running away from me if you are not with me you're against me so what jesus has done here is he is taking neutrality this idea that you can be neutral and he's saying it's not an option he's crossing it off the multiple choice test Taking away option C. There is no neutrality with Jesus. There's no fence riding with Jesus. You're with him or you are against him. Remember back in chapter 9, there was a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't like rolling with the disciples. He wasn't like in the band of the 12. Um, He wasn't in the group. And so John said, hey, we tried to stop him. And Jesus was like, no, don't stop him. He's trying to do the same work you're doing. Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. You say, well, don't these two things contradict? Well, no, they don't contradict because to have the same mission as the disciples and the same master as the disciples and the same work as the disciples, but just not travel with the disciples is a far cry from saying, oh, I don't follow Jesus. I don't call them satanic, but I don't follow them. To, to be doing the same work with the same mission and the same master, that's not neutrality. That's doing the same work, but just dwelling in a different camp, right? That's, that's Presbyterian Baptist. Now, these folks here who are trying to ride the fence and stay in the middle, they're doing something that is anti-Christian. It's the opposite of following Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. You follow me or you don't follow me. Period. Now, why is it this way? Why can't you be in the middle? I'm in the middle on other things. I mentioned earlier, I I love sports. I'll be watching sports sometimes, and my kids will come in, and they always want to ask who I'm rooting for. Now, if they look on the TV and they see Liverpool, or they see the Washington football team, or they see the Nationals, they don't ask the question. They know. The question is, how much do you dislike the people on the other side? Okay? If the Cowboys are on, they know. If Manchester United are on, they know, all right? But sometimes they'll walk in, and just random stuff's going on, on the TV, and they're like, which one of these two teams do you like? And it's the Chargers and the Vikings. And I say, I don't care. just want to see a good game, right? That's what you say. I don't love the Chargers. I don't hate the Chargers. I feel nothing for the Chargers. You know, it's the same way I feel about the Vikings. So just want to see a good game. And you can be that way with sports teams. And you can be that way with like food or with bands. Like Fleetwood Mac. I don't love Fleetwood Mac. I don't hate Fleetwood Mac. I don't feel anything for Fleetwood Mac. Kind of the way I feel about celery. You know, take it or leave it. Throw some on my plate, I might have a few bites. You can't be this way with Jesus though. Because his claims are too great. He walked into this world and said, I'm God in the flesh. He, he took scrolls and, and, un, and unfurled them in the synagogue and read 700-year-old prophecies and said, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. He looked at the Pharisees and said, before Abraham was, I am. And he knew what he meant when he said, I am. He's referring to Exodus 3. The way that God identified himself to Moses and the Israelites. The great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can't follow me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, even though you die, you never really die. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can't stay neutral with him when he's saying stuff like that. You either think he is crazy, or you think he's misguided, or you think he's a con man, or you believe him. Pharisees looked at him and said, you're a con man. These people thought, he's a nice guy, he's probably a little off base. But in the end, they're both against him. And in the end, it's unbelief any way you cut it. You can't stay neutral with Jesus because his claims are so great, they require you to make a decision, and you also can't stay neutral with Jesus because you weren't born neutral with Jesus. We think that sometimes, don't we? We think the way some of the the great enlightenment thinkers thought, that, that men are not born good or bad, they are made good or bad by the environment, or that men are not born bad, they're actually born good and made bad by the environment. That's not what the Bible tells us. R.C. Sproul says it this way, By our nature, our attitude toward God is not one of mere indifference. It is a posture of malice. We oppose His government and refuse His rule over us. Our natural hearts are devoid of affection for Him. They are cold, frozen to His holiness. By nature, the love of God is not in us. It is not enough to say that natural man views God as an enemy. We must be more precise. God is our mortal enemy. He represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. His repugnance to us is absolute, knowing no lesser degrees. No amount of persuasion by men or argumentation from philosophers or theologians can induce us to love God. We despise His very existence and would do anything in our power to rid the universe of His holy presence. If God were to expose His life to our hands, He would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore Him. We would destroy Him what a quote if you let this secular culture that we live in get a hold of god and they were too able to destroy him they can't but if they were able to do that illogical thing oh they would try they would give it their all and if you think i'm being extreme or rc sprawl's being extreme about the natural state of people let me just read you The Bible quoting the Bible. This is Paul in Romans 3 just throwing out a list of Old Testament references. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." On this 4th of July, if you lament the state of this nation more than any 4th of July before it, and you wonder, as you look at the culture, what is going on, just open up to Romans three, ten through 18 as Paul quotes the Old Testament and a string of references and go, that's what's going on. That's it. So it should be no surprise then that when the second person of the Trinity comes to earth in the flesh, you either follow him or you reject him. Sin has not left your heart in a state to be neutral about Jesus. And only the Holy Spirit can change your heart to make you for Him. So what happens if you reject Him? Let's look at verses 24 and 26 as we wrap up. If you reject Jesus, be it on a claim of neutrality or you are like that man in the hospital bed who says, I'll die without Him. There's not just going to be a spiritual vacuum. Instead, your brokenness is going to lead you to try to reform yourself. Or it will lead you to self-destruct. We know that happens to some people, right? Some people opt for destruction, clearly. They throw themselves into the grip of painful, dreadful, life-draining addictions. But I would argue that's not the biggest spectrum of society. We all know people like that, but I think that most people more often than not, try to reform themselves. They don't opt for self-destruction. They get gym memberships. They do yoga. They repeat mantras. They buy millions of copies of self-help books every year. They go on retreats. They take self-care days. They buy oils. If you do some of those things, I'm not bashing you. If you do those things because you're rejecting Jesus and you think these things are going to make you whole, I'm warning you. All of these things are done in the name of what? Self-reform. Look at what Jesus says in these verses. He says when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places. It goes through, goes throughout the land. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So if you pursue reformation without regeneration, you will end up worse off than where you began. I'm going to say that one more time. If you pursue reformation, try to reform yourself, without regeneration, you'll end up worse off than when you began. Regeneration is the act of the Holy Spirit giving your heart spiritual life. And if there's going to be true transformation in your life, then there has to be regeneration. In in, in self-reform, you might move a bad spirit along. But if the Spirit of God is not dwelling in your heart, the demonic spirit will just come back to your heart that you got organized with that latest self-help book, and then He brings seven friends along. And you say, why? If I clean my heart up on my own, why am I even more primed to be a foothold for the enemy? Because you tried to reform yourself before, right? Before you tried to reform yourself, I should say. So before you did the self-reform gig, you were a mess. You knew it. That's why you pursued self-reform. That's why you started using the oils. You know what I mean? Your self-esteem was on the floor. You're like, I'm a mess. I got to do something here. But now that you've seemingly cleaned your life up in your own strength, you're puffed up and you believe even more than before. I can do this thing without God. I got this. And when you believe that, you are a prime candidate for Satan's work to find residence. So what am I saying? Am I saying that if you don't go to church and, and you read self-help books and you go to the gym and you use essential oils, you'll end up being demon-possessed? course not that's not the point the point is that all unbelief is satanic and the unbelieving heart that's fooled into thinking it can fix itself will be a breeding ground for more and more satanic unbelief more and more rejection of christ these final words from jesus were particularly brutal on the ears of the pharisees it was hard for them to hear because they taught self-reformation without regeneration that was their religion that was their big lesson They preached, work your way to righteousness. And if you're good enough, God's arm will be twisted into giving you eternal life, whether he likes it or not. Which is why Jesus looked at them in Matthew 23 and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves they travel the whole world to get a convert to follow their teaching, but their teaching would only pervert that person's heart and prepare their heart for more unbelief to reside there. They would literally learn from the Pharisees how to be children of hell. Now, next week's like a part two to the sermon, so we'll pick it up for the, uh, there uh, next week. But uh, for today, the question is really clear it's really simple it's the same question that pastor ben hayden asked that dying man at 3 30 a.m in the hospital it's this how is it between you and jesus no matter how accomplished you are no matter how wise you are no matter how noble you are by worldly standards apart from jesus you're a captive of satan that's the reality You are in desperate need of the rescue that Jesus provides. The spiritual freedom and the life that he gives. And so, don't be hard-hearted like the Pharisees. See who it is that stands in front of you with his hand out offering you to come to him and to find rest in the midst of your weariness and your brokenness. Agree with God that your sin is evil. And trust in His Son's death on your behalf where He suffered on the cross for every one of your sins, including your unbelief. And trust in His resurrection where He proved once and for all He is not a partner of Satan. He is an enemy of Satan and He is the victor over Satan and over sin and over death and over all of hell. And ask Him for forgiveness based on the fact that He died in your place and He rose again for you and receive eternal life. And when that happens, when you repent of your sin, and you trust in Christ, and you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit who dwells in you forever. And the rest of your days and into forever, by the grace of God, you will be for Jesus and with Jesus. So how is it between you and Jesus? You're the only one that can answer that question. I would love to talk with you about it. You can text or email connect at seafordbaptist.com. If you text an email address, I don't know if you know, that goes to an email address. So you can text connect at seafordbaptist.com right in your phone, or you can email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. And our pastors would love to talk to you and love to help you settle that question. How is it between you and Jesus? Our worship team is going to come now, and uh, as they come, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I didn't give a ton of application for my brothers and sisters in the room. This is a, a very evangelistic message that we have today. It's, it's a call for belief in the face of unbelief. But I do pray right now, first of all, that people who do not know you that have heard this message, be it in this room or on the live stream today, would say, enough of this. I'm not going to die without Jesus, and I'm not going to live without Jesus. I want eternal life, and I want Christ. I want to agree with the Lord on all that he says in his word. And I want to look at the works of his son and say, these are done by the finger of God, and trust in them. And I pray they will do that. But for believers in the room, Lord... I pray that we feel compelled on this 4th of July more than ever to go out and share the gospel because there are people who are running around. There are people who are just like the Pharisees. They're obstinate in their hearts. They're hard-hearted. They would, If we're asked, they would say, I'll die without Jesus. But there are droves of people, Lord. So many more who are running around this morning and they're claiming neutrality. and They think they're good to go because they don't hate them they don't understand that in their hearts they do that they're just as far from them they're just as lost today i would guess that over a hundred lost people if not more are going to be around our church members at fourth of july cookouts Help us remember who we are and to take those opportunities to share the gospel, to impress upon people the importance of believing as spiritual conversations come up and to represent you well. And I pray, Father, that as we look to our nation and we pray for the state of it, that our prayers would begin with the mission of the local church. Because more than anything, what America needs is Christians telling people about Jesus and starting more churches. So help us to be all in on that as this local church. And I pray for the churches of our nation, the faithful, biblical, local churches of our nation, Lord, to be all in on that. And I pray that more people would come to know you between now and July 4th, 2022, than any year before it in the United States. God, draw the lost people to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.